2: Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Proper Class Podcast. I'm Laura Checkley and
3: I'm Hannah Chiswick
2: and we are of course here to celebrate all things working class because if we don't, who will? Who will, who bloody will, tra la 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 no bastard will. Oh, my God. Love Christmas. Is your tree up yet?
3: No, but don't worry. I've got a full day put aside for it this week. My,
2: my tree went up at the weekend. We had Christmas movies on, Bailey's Hot
3: Chocolate on the Go. Lovely, mate. Lovely. I can't wait. to. Me, me and you need a little festive amaretto before too long. <laughs> we do indeed. Anyway, back to the matter in hand. As always, we are sitting down with a working class hero to celebrate their life and achievements and discuss just how they got to where they are today. So on that note, who are we celebrating this week, Law? Oh, well, you're all in for a right old treat today because not only is this week's guest a
2: brilliant actor, he's also a top, top bloke who I'm lucky enough to call a mate. You might know him best for playing Neil in the multi-award winning hit comedy show, The Inbetweeners. It was such a hit that they subsequently went on to do two films. I'll never forget that robot dancing moment and that turd shooting down the slide. Iconic. He does it all, TV, theatre, film,
3: and he's even turned his hand to a bit of directing on the award winning show short film, Hoofs of Clay. He was also the voice of Scoop in the 2015 reboot of Bob the Builder. Oh, somebody's been on Wikipedia. (laughs) He's starred in A Very English Scandal, Keeping Rosie, Big Bad World, Him and Her, The Bill, World on Fire, and he did a cracking portrayal of Private Pike in the remake of Dad's Army.
2: Oh, honey, you seem to have left Edge of Heaven off that list, which was sadly not a hit show for the two of us, (laughs) but our guest was lucky enough to star opposite me.
3: so Paul sod. (laughs) Yeah.
2: <laughs> but most recently our guest can be seen starring in the great and itv sitcom kate and koji but out of all the things he has achieved surely surely his proudest moment has got to be scoring the winning penalty on soccer aid in 2018 listeners give it up for the insanely talented blake harrison <laughs> oh,
4: thank you that's the best intro i've ever had That was <laughs> really? incredible. i loved every minute of that
2: oh you are welcome was it your best moment scoring that goal
4: Oh, it's got to be up there, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's. I mean, I have to say, I, I've never really been that good at football. To be honest, my brother's more the, the footballer, and the funny thing was that I, I got him tickets to to come and watch it. And afterwards, he was like, "Yeah, I'm, I am really proud of you," but also, I'm like, "You've kind of lived out my dream." And I've spent my whole life. <laughs> playing Sunday league or semi-pro and like, and you, the, the, the uncoordinated older brother that I was running rings around from the age of about five has just lived my dream and scored the penalty at Old Trafford.
3: You've
2: definitely lived Laura's dream there as well. well though, Laura. I was just yeah. going to say though, for anyone that didn't see it, uh, it was, um, the winning penalty. So everything was, was it like minutes left in the game or was it a penalty shootout? I can't remember. No,
4: It was, it was a penalty shootout and it got into sudden death and, uh, Yeah. I don't even know how I did it, really. I'll tell you what probably helped is uh, Nick Byrne, who was the goalkeeper uh, for the World Eleven, is probably about five foot seven. (laughs) So because he dove the right way.
2: From Westlife.
4: Yeah. Yeah. He's he's pretty short. If he was as tall as I am, he probably would have saved it. But the fact that he's quite short meant it just nipped past him because he did go the right way. Um, when you
2: stepped up in that moment, I was, cause obviously knowing you, I was so nervous for you. Cause I know you'd said, Oh, you know, I'm not the greatest player. I know that you're a massive fan. You're a Millwall fan, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you stepped up, I just, I was like, Oh no. Oh no. Cause this is going to go one way or the other. And it was just. A super moment. Like I was, I actually got up like I was watching England for real. Like I was <laughs> screaming top of my lungs, I did, it, I did it. it was just oh so I was so made up for you. It was such a great moment.
4: It was such I a didn't great. go to bed till about 6 a.m. I was absolutely buzzing <laughs> the whole night. I couldn't get to sleep. It was brilliant.
3: So Blake. Yeah, We start each week asking our guests to take us back to a place and time that has some meaning to them, Yeah, somewhere that has a connection to their working class roots. So if you're able to go back to somewhere, where would you take us?
4: Um, Well, I I don't know if it's like the best choice in the world, but um, when when you're thinking about like kind of like working class roots and stuff like that, my head just immediately went to uh, the New Cross Social Club, which was like this working men's club. And it was literally like I grew up on like an, a council estate in Peckham. and uh, But still, the, the social club was the New Cross Social Club. It's a weird little area where you walk one way, you're in South Irmsy, next way is New Cross, but you're in Peckham. And um, I come out of my house and uh, you turn right and you can walk for probably less than 60 seconds and the New Cross Social Club was there. And every single Sunday, we would go there and it was, you know, my dad would have a few drinks, there was bingo and the raffle it was like some weird routine type thing it was like we always went there and my dad he enjoys a flutter probably a bit too much but he even like the bingo the raffle all that stuff it was all they would do race nights and he would watch a bit, it's probably quite ahead of its time given that uh what was the what's the big race every year um grand national grand national the grand national was like over like virtually this uh, last year wasn't it so this one would do like they've got um old videos of races i don't know how they make it work because it's not virtual it's like a real old race so if you've got a memory you're gonna win a packet um <laughs> and they would just stick these on like a, a rubbish pull down screen and uh, people would bet on who they think is gonna win and then uh, and then they'd sit and they'd watch the race that's probably about 30 years old or something and, uh, and you'd win or you wouldn't win and stuff. And they'd do events like that. And Christmas Eve was always over there. And I remember that there was the snooker room where the kids weren't allowed in the snooker room. And every time the door opened, the smoke that billowed <laughs> out of there. It was just yeah, old blokes yeah. smoking their cigarettes, playing snooker. It was so dark in there. And at, like Christmas Eve we'd be going over there again as well. And um, did,
2: they do like a, did they do like a disco in the evening sometimes as well? Yeah, did you have that?
4: Yeah, there was discos or like a bit of karaoke or something like that. And they had like, there was like three rooms. There was like the big hall where they would do like the raffles and the bingos. Then there was more like the pubby section, which maybe had like a telly there. And, uh, and then there was the snooker room uh, attached to that. And there was always, in the pub area, there was always like an arcade machine that all the kids that were there would always be fighting over who was next on like, the arcade machine. And I remember there was like Tyson Punch-Out or like Double Dragon, which was like two Bruce Lee characters just going around. Street, Amazing. Like, proper old school arcade game. I can smell it
2: yeah. from here. I can, yeah. Just all of yeah. that description was so brilliant. I can smell it because I grew up in you know all those sort of we went to the cricket club which is in Uxbridge and it's just got this smell but it's so comforting i sometimes go back mm. it's a brilliant place to grow up the characters right what is that why you picked it what what made you pick
4: that place today i don't know it just it felt like just it just felt like like the most working class thing yeah and there was just a a, a weird Happy routine to it. It didn't, I mean, I mean, maybe my mum was sick of it. I don't know. But uh, I, I just felt like everyone was like, that's what we do on a Sunday. We get over there for about midday and then we do all of that. And then after we've been there and they've done the bingo and my dad's had a few beers and all that kind of stuff, then around four ish or whatever, we'd come home and it'd be there'd be Sunday football on. And then there was always a gap between. The Sunday football finishing and the Simpsons starting at six. <laughs> and uh, during that gap was always the time for me and my brother to to fight my dad. It was like it was wrestling time. It was like Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, all that <laughs> stuff. And so it was like what we called like rough and tumble or whatever. And we'd be jumping off sofas and all that. And then come six o'clock, it was like we'd all watch the Simpsons. It was just part of a very a, a happy routine.
2: So uh, let's just take you back a bit then. Obviously, we're just touching on your childhood a little bit. Um, what was it like? Where did you grow up? Obviously, you were saying sort of that New Cross area. Was it Bermondsey, did you say?
4: Yeah, so, so it's technically it's Peckham, and that's where the council estate was. But um, if, again, if I walked five minutes in one direction, I'd be in like New Cross Gate. And if I walked five minutes in the other direction, it's technically South Bermondsey. So it was like a, a weird, like I always used to say Peckham, but most of the kind of traditional Peckham like hangouts and uh, those kind of iconic spots, I didn't really hang out there or go there. I was, did spend more time in, in New Cross and Bermondsey, but technically we were SE15, so that that was Peckham.
2: And did you go to school locally or where was your school? Yeah, my
4: primary school was local and then I went to uh, Bacon's College, which is in Roverive, so that was like a couple of buses away. Uh, which was a good school. I don't know if it still is, I assume it is, but uh, it was a good school at the time. But then I left when I was about 13 to go to the Brit School right. uh, because I, I knew what I wanted to do, you know. and, and
2: That was going to be my next question. Like, how, how was school for you?
4: It was a real mixture. So, I mean, because I grew up in what is quite a tough area, you know, like now it's had a bit of a resurgence, but Peckham and, and yeah. New Cross and that around that time, not particularly nice areas at all. And uh, you you would leave the house as like you know skinny little boy feeling a bit like you've got a target on your back and that someone could mug you at I did get mugged a couple of times and stuff like that. And uh, you know, and then at school, uh, probably probably found it hard to fit in because I always knew I wanted to act or you know to begin with I wanted to do musicals and stuff. So I'm this little boy in Peckham that wants to sing and dance and stuff. It, it was never going to go down too well. <laughs> Yeah, but then when I got to the Brit school at 14, you realised everyone there has made a bit of a sacrifice. They've gone, I'm going to change mm-hmm. schools and go somewhere new and because uh, and I want to do this. I, I already know at the age of 14 the kinds of areas I want to go in with my life.
2: Like as a working class kid, how did you hear about this place? Which I, I went to Brit school as well, yeah. listeners. Um, but um, it's the only non-fee paying yes. performing arts yes. uh, school around, isn't it? Yeah. Which is hugely important. Um, how did you hear about it?
4: Well, my, my cousin was on a similar path to me. And whenever he went to like a kind of uh you know, uh, performing arts type place or like on a Saturday, he went to like uh, little clubs and stuff like that that specialised in performing arts stuff. Um, my mum my would go, oh, Blake really wants to do that. So I'll send him as well. You know, and, and he ended up going to the British school. And so I kind of followed in his footsteps quite a lot. And, and my cousin, Stuart, who was quite a big inspiration to me when I was really young, because he was just so funny. Like, we, we loved a lot of the <laughs> I like was big Jim Carrey fans, big uh, Lee Evans fans, all that kind of physical comedy. And he was just like the funniest guy. I know I always loved hanging out. He was a couple of years older as well. And you know, you know, when you have that person in your life and you're just like, oh, there's a little bit older. And you just think they're like the best. You just want to be them. That's kind of what Stuart was to me at a young age, you know. And uh, and so, yeah, when he went to Brit School, I was like, oh, well, that's, I'm following that path. That's what I want to do. And it's only kind of, I suppose, a little bit after that, that he was going down one route. And I chose to go down a slightly uh, different route and do more kind of straight acting rather than going into more
3: musical based stuff. And so was that, how were your parents with that? Was there any resistance from them when you wanted to, you know, suddenly you say, right, what I want to do is musical theatre or perform or were they supportive?
4: Um, my dad was a bit more reluctant. Um, I think he, uh, you know, is a much older generation of mm. uh, working class men and uh, he, A, was like, you should get a proper job and do something <laughs> serious. And B, I do think there was an element of him that was probably a bit like, oh well if he does this stuff, he's he's gonna be a bit, you know, oh I don't know, a bit bit gay or something like that. Like and to him that was that was a negative. And uh yeah, so I but my mum was amazing. My mum always said, No, he wants to do this. I wanna take him down this path if he if he wants to do it. And she would be the the person that I go, she is probably the reason i've got to 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 where i am in a lot of ways she sacrificed a lot and and put up with a lot to to just for me to kind of do what i wanted to do really and there was never any guarantees it would go well there was no blueprint for it going well because no one in my family had done anything like this before and so it was all just on kind of faith Really?
3: Yeah, yeah. Where did the musicals come from? How did you even know about musicals? What Was was your mum listening to them or were you watching them on telly or how did you...? I don't
4: know. I mean, I guess must have I must been. My mum took me to a theatre as a kid, but again, I think it was after I started showing an interest, there was these deals. Right. She could somehow get these deals that was like you could, for like 20 or 30 quid or whatever it is, go and have a two-person meal at Garfunkel's And then go and watch Martin Gare at whatever thing it was. (laughs) That's what it was. (laughs) And, you know, and so, you know, we would do that every few months. It'd be like, and it would just be me and mum, because my little brother didn't give a shit. (laughs) He wasn't interested. And my dad wasn't interested. So that'd be like me and mum, I'd be so excited. I'd be like, oh, we'd get on the bus. And then we'd go down to Garfunkel's and I'd get chicken and chips and uh and then we there uh, and then we go and watch whatever the music was and then there was also like little panto things i remember watching shane ritchie uh do peter pan somewhere and i think my aunt worked at the theater in some capacity maybe even like an usher or something but she, she somehow made it so that in the interval when shane ritchie comes out and goes all right, I want some kids on stage and we're going to do this. I got to be one of the kids. <laughs> and I think I'd already seen him in Greece playing Danny or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I thought, he, again, really funny, really great. I really And I was probably only about eight or something like that. And uh, yeah, so I, I just always had that thing. And my mum was just really responsive to it in a brilliant way. She was just like, oh he's showing an interest in it let's let's go for it and and it didn't stop there you know she she would try and take us to all sorts of classes and stuff but that was just the only thing that that stuck
2: and so then, from the Brit School came, I suppose, the natural progression to drama school because that, uh, that yeah. obviously happened to me at the Brit School. Just got introduced to so here's a load of drama schools. Which one would you like to go to an audition for? So yeah,
4: I didn't know anything about it. It was all like you fill out your UCAS form and you do this and and that was it. And I ended up going to East 15, but it was on my second year of trying. I think I definitely chose the wrong speeches because my first year. I remember doing, is it the Earl of Rochester from the Libertine? It's all very sexual. It's a like, good
3: speech though, isn't it? It's a good speech. But but not I for was, a kid. Well, yeah, I was
4: like a <laughs> 17-year-old virgin. Yeah. But I, you know, I didn't know what I was talking about. And he was coming out with all this sexual stuff. But my mates all found it funny. They thought, oh, Blake's <laughs> yeah. cracking me up. This is, Blake, you're hilarious, mate. <laughs> You've got to go and do that speech at drama school. I was like, yeah, no, I'm really funny with this. It's great. And then I did it. And you realise... No, I wasn't being truthful at all. I was being almost like a bit of a pantomime or something. I, I was playing to the crowd a bit too much, going, oh, I'm doing all this rude stuff. And uh, and so I did all the wrong speeches. And then I I, I got to East 15, and then um, I decided I've got to change it up. It's not working. And I remember doing one, and it was kind of like you're really close, but not quite there yet and i was like okay fair enough but that's the best i've had and that, but they said to me please come back next year and this was in like june and what i found out was east 15 told you on the day when you got in oh, oh. and i thought that was amazing so like all these other schools like rada and lambda obviously they're amazing but for someone in my position it was like you got to pay 30 quid go and audition you might do one scene and then they've gone thanks very much you're not good enough that's not Mm. fair I've paid 30 quid for this this is a
2: conversation Hannah and I talk about a lot actually with the the entry uh, price just to audition at a drama school Um, I I think it's 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 very tricky isn't it it's a lot of money and if you're a working class kid and your family hasn't got a lot of money who's got 35 40 I don't know it's like 50 quid now is it it's probably way more than what we paid when we auditioned and then that's giving you sort of one shot isn't it one shot because I can only I've only got
3: 50 quid or my parents can only afford one shot and also you're in London imagine like, you know, you've got to come from Manchester and then you've got to pay a train fare on top of all of that. It's so, it just precludes so many people from even trying, doesn't it? It's just not possible. So after you finished uh, East 15, what happened then? Did you go straight into work or did you have the usual rounds of auditions or what, what happened then?
4: Well, that was a weird one because I, I didn't, I left with no agent. A few people left an agent. I didn't have an agent. And i got, uh, uh, I went on uh, what's now called, I think, Mandy.com.
3: Old Mandy.
4: <laughs> so, yeah, so I did like an unpaid play at a pub theatre. And again, I wouldn't have really been able to afford to do it. A mate of mine landed a job sticking uh, security labels on the insides of buses. What a random job. Oh, so random. So random. All those labels. And so you had to, but you had to do it when the buses were all in the garage. So, from about 8 p.m. to 4 a.m., we were sticking labels inside buses. And I was scared, Laura. It was creepy as hell. I was like, I was always like, "Oh no, Jack, we we'll let's do the buses together. Like, you go top, I'll go bottom, and we'll just do the bus together." It was like, "No, we'll get through it quicker if you start on that And I was like, "No, I'm kidding, <laughs> Jack, I don't want to be in the garage on my own." How old were you when you did that job? Oh, I, I was an adult. I was like, <laughs> I was like twenty-one
2: was so that like, we, we always talk about um, your first job and, and sort of your shittish job, um, obviously not acting-wise. Um, mine was my, one of my first jobs. I was a chambermaid, um, but I got fired. Uh, so I, she just, my boss would come in the room because I'd i be sat on the end of the bed eating the bourbons <laughs> watching Neighbours. Um, and I, I got fired after about four weeks. Um, and that was possibly, I think, the shittish job I've ever had. Um, what was yours? Other than this, sticking uh, labels, I mean, that sounds quite fun. Scary, yeah, but
4: fun. Um, I would say it's probably, and it, again, it, a lot of other people might enjoy it, but it's just when I was 16, I got my first job. And so I was going to Brit school five days a week and then working Saturdays and Sundays. For wow. about nine months I did that. I was knackered. And um, uh, I was working in the uh, Kirk Geiger Carvela Department of Selfridges. And oh, God. I, and I was selling these shoes and I was like, I didn't have a clue about, and it was all women's shoes. I didn't have a clue about women's shoes. I was a 16 year old boy that I didn't know anything about shoes for myself. <laughs> there these really posh, rich um, women would come in and then from all over the world as well. They, they, the Italians, French, you know, Americans would just come in and want to be like really kind of pampered. And they, they had all these rules of like, so you bring the shoe that they've asked for. You also bring it in a size either side, just in case. Then you also bring an alternative shoe and you bring the shoe that they wanted, but in an alternative colour. And so they give you a shoe and they'd expect you to come out one shoe box. You come out five or six shoe boxes, you're like, here you go. All for
2: £2.50 an hour, great.
4: Yeah, I mean, you did get like commission and, and stuff like that, but oh, I, 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 I really wasn't into it and I didn't know what I was talking about. And I also I was quite a shy <laughs> 16 year old as well. And so I'd have to make the effort to go, Oh, can I help you madam? Would you like anything else? And you know, these women were quite, they seemed powerful in a weird way. They, they had money. They knew what they wanted. They were in Selfridge's, Kurt Geiger department looking for shoes that were pretty expensive. They knew what they wanted, and I was just this little 16-year-old, oh, madam, you, could could you want some shoes? And, uh, yeah, it was it was awful. I hated it.
2: You were saying, obviously, that you worked on a Saturday and Sunday when you were at the Brit school. Mm. Um, is that something that was just instilled in you growing up, like your mum and dad said, right now, you know, you're 16, 17, get a uh, Saturday job, get a Sunday? Or was it because you were aware that
4: you grew up with not so much money, and you just wanted to earn money? What was I, I wanted a TV. I really wanted a TV for my bedroom. And that's the first thing I bought with my first paycheck. I had a, a I had like, I don't know if it was 28 or 32 inch widescreen TV, but I'm talking the round screens. <laughs> it was such a beast. It was so heavy, like two of you carrying it up and downstairs or whatever it is. Cause I was massive into computer gaming as well. So, like for birthdays and stuff, I'd be like, right, we'll we'll system link everything. You get the wire from like some of us be down in the living room and then we'll get a wire into the one upstairs and, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll link up all the Playstations or the Xboxes or whatever it is and we'll be playing eight player Halo or Pro Evolution Soccer on the multitaps or whatever it is. And so I wanted a big TV for the gaming and stuff. And uh, and that's what I bought my first paycheck. But it was an app. Now, when you think about how these screens are like an inch thick, this was like, the back of it, the depth of it, was wider than <laughs> yeah. the screen. Yeah, it was massive.
3: So you've left East Fifteen, and you, you're doing your dues, working and you're for free in a pub theatre. Yes. What What happens next? What's What's sort of the, the first paid job you get, or what's the break for you? So
4: well, so I'm doing I'm doing that, uh, doing the bus work, and then like <laughs> eight am, eight pm to four am. Wake up for rehearsals at about eight am to go and do this unpaid pub theatre gig, uh, which. Was not very good, (laughs) and (laughs) uh, let's be honest. um, And then um, when we start doing the actual performances, I can't do the buses anymore because it's night work. Sure. Um, And so I end up thinking I need to do something, and I start doing the training for um, like you know, like call centers where you're calling up on the behalf of a charity. Um, to get them to you know, oh, donate more money or whatever. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So I was, and I was doing the training. Now they didn't pay you for the training. So I'm I'm about halfway through a week's worth of training before I can then start earning money. And I get a phone call from Spotlight because Spotlight was my agent at the time. So we want you to, uh, there's auditions for this sitcom called Baggy Trousers. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't know. And I phoned my mum. So I'm like, oh, mum, I, I have to get through this week of training to get paid but I've been asked to go for an audition. If I go for this audition, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to complete the week of training. I have to start again the week of training." She was like, look, you've just done three years at drama school and you're in student debt and everything. Just, you're meant to be an actor. Just go to the audition, it'll all work out. Just go to the audition. And uh, I walked in there and it was all just young lads, 13 of which were from my own year at drama school. It was like a cattle mart audition. And uh, baggy trousers. After it was filmed, there, I think gets renamed "The In Between Us." Uh, and that was it. But the audition process was mental because it was like recall, 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 recall over the course of a couple of weeks or whatever it was. It was it was pretty intense.
2: Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Because you could have just chickened out and gone. do You know what? I need to stay at this work because I need to uh, I need to stay on this training because I need to get paid and I need to. That, you know, it's that. It's, it's so many. There's been so many crossroads as a working class actor where you go. Hold on. Do I drop everything, possibly lose this job, and not be able to pay my rent? Yeah. Oh, no. What happened? You imagine if you hadn't have gone. Thank God yeah. for your well, mum.
4: So no, I, I was saying, like she absolutely said the the right thing because I was worried. I, I wasn't sure what to do, um, but in the end, she definitely directed me the, the right way. And you know, you, who knows where I would be? I mean, there's a part of your brain that I think is where the actor comes from. That kind of you do have to have an inner confidence to do it. That goes. Oh no! Well, you still would have done something. You would have got something. You would have had a different career, but you would have made it. But then there's the more rational part of your brain that goes, "Well, no. You could have just had to completely give up. You would have had no money, no agent. Because again, I had no agent at the time. It was all through Spotlight. It's
2: incredible. So, yeah. It's so incredible that you got the opportunity to go for that incredible job. How old are you when all that happened?
4: Maybe just turned 20, 22. Just turned 22, something. Like that.
2: And how did it? I mean, how did it change your life?
4: Well, it did. It was slow because, again, after series one, I think pretty much all four of the main lads, we all went back to our like a two-a-day or went to a day job. So I did the first series of in got an agent during filming it because I had something to send them, like the rough cuts of some stuff. And um, then I ended up getting a job at Madame Two Swords in the scare chamber. (laughs) And then I I left that and uh, did a bit of work in an office for a couple of months and then Series 2 came along.
2: And is that when it really kicked off, Series 2? Is that when it started to really... Well,
4: again, I I would say no. I I think it's more Series 3 because after Series 2, I didn't go back to a regular job, but what I did a lot of and it killed my soul a little bit, but I was just like, it's this or working back in an office or Madame Tussauds or something like that. And it was uh, public appearances at nightclubs and stuff like that. It was very kind right. of David Brent. Uh, and it was uh, you know I'd, I'd go to a nightclub, you'd sign stuff for people, you'd get on the stage. Uh, you know, at the time, the In Between Us wasn't big, but it was kind of culty. It was especially with our students and stuff like that. So it's the first series was the only series that had actually aired at that point. Yeah. And so yeah, so I was doing these nights. And it was decent money for, like, an hour or two's work. Got free drinks. Sometimes I took a mate along with me or something. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, oh, this is all right. It's better than working in the office or something. Oh, my
3: God, 100%. Yeah. So it's the third series where it, like, really – everything changed from that. Do you feel like that was the big yeah,
4: shift? We, well, we got a big pay bump for the third series, which massively helped. Because, like, first series and second series – we were optioned on the first series for the second series and we got a tiny little increase and which meant that you know after those series i did have to find other employment quite quickly um and the third series was the one that came along and i went oh i've actually got enough money in the bank now to not worry about going and getting a job Mm. i i can just try for acting work and obviously because the series have been doing so well by that point the acting jobs were, or at least auditions were coming in.
2: Did you find that transition difficult though, Blake? I know, like, it's a funny moment, isn't it, in a career, especially being, I think, working class, where you go, right, do I step off here a little bit? Can I, can I? Because there's always that need all the time for me anyway. I've got to keep earning. I've got to keep earning. I've got to stay busy. I've got to stay busy. And it's just that sort of work ethic to go, do I stop now and just trust that the acting is an actual job?
4: Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I, I mean, I, 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 what I thought you were going to say is talking about kind of like not just accepting every job that comes in yeah, or something like that. Because that, I think, is a real big one. And that, I think, is a big difference between... Young actors starting out that have got money can have a say on where their career goes and what they want their career Mm -hmm. to be. But actors that don't come from money just go, oh, my God, you're paying me to act? Fantastic. I'd rather do that than work at the office or wherever. Whereas if you come from money, you're just like, well, I just want to work on the stuff I want to work on, and I don't have to worry about paying the bills. That's sorted either by a trust fund or mummy and daddy or, or whatever it is. But you know, if you if you if you don't come from that kind of privileged background, then you have to just take whatever comes along for a long period of time, and that can have unfortunately long lasting effects on your career. Yeah, because Mm. you might do a couple of jobs that do well, and I mean, even me to to a certain point, I, I wonder to myself, oh well, I've been playing this idiot that is, you know, funny and silly. And now I thinking, oh, I'd love to be taken a bit more seriously in a few roles. And luckily I've had that opportunity a few times. But there's always that concern of like, oh, because I did that, mm. because I had to, there, there no choice. I mean, and obviously even though if I had the choice, I probably would take it because it's you know it did so well, that show. But there was no choice in doing multiple series of that. I couldn't just go, do you know what, I'm just going to stick at two series and then walk away before I get typecast. Or if that, that was never an option No, because I had to take that, that money and, and do that. So, so yeah, and and that that is always something that I, I think about with young actors and the, the fact that, you know, a lot of them, the working class ones, won't have a say in where their career goes and it can leave a footprint on you for future castings and stuff.
3: It's interesting that because I've definitely felt, I mean, mine's from a director's point of view, but people say, why did you take that job? Why did you not? And I thought, because I'm a director and that's how I earn money, It's you know, I, I have to work and I work as a director, so... That's why I took it. Yeah. <laughs> They're not all passion projects. The passion projects are a luxury. Sometimes they do come along nearly always. They pay you nothing. But, yeah. the you know, it was it was always that. Or like you say, what do you do? Do you then go and work in a bar? Or not that there's anything wrong with those jobs, but I I wanted to direct. I thought that's what I am, so I need to work. Yeah. So obviously you then become well known. It has huge success, and how did your family deal with that? How did they deal with you suddenly having this kind of fame? I suppose.
4: Um, well, yeah. I mean, they've never. Ch- I mean, there was a few requests of like, ah, oh, uh, you know, like my dad worked um, as a driver for government car service, and there'd be people in the driver's room that he'd be like, oh yeah, that's my boy in that, or whatever. They'd be like, "Oh, can they get me an autograph? We're going to do this or whatever." So you start getting like a few requests for things and stuff. But generally speaking, I, I, don't, I think they were just proud. It didn't change. But I mean, one of the things I always go back to, which is, uh, I mean, it was very early on. But like when I got the call to to get the part in the in-betweeners, I was playing Pro Evolution Soccer with my brother, and I get the phone call. And uh, the casting director phones me direct, obviously, because I've got no agent. And she's like, I just want to say uh, congratulations, you've, you've got the part, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And put down the phone. And he turns around to me and goes, did you get that part then? I went, yeah. Yeah, I've got the part. He went brilliant. Can we carry on with the master league now? Yeah. And he just like starts playing privilege. So I'm like, yeah, fair enough. You would not change that for the world, would you? Like, no. I mean, even my ah, oh, there was so there was one time during the filming of the first series where uh, my mum, I was going back to my mum's for the weekend. I don't know if it was like a birthday or something like. That. I can't remember. And I was speaking to her whilst I was on the set, and she was like, um, "Oh, so do, do you need me to come and pick you up? Then do you want me to come and pick you up?" I was like, "Mum, they they provide cars. I get I get." I get dropped off to wherever I want to go. She was like, Oh, he gets dropped off wherever he wants to go. Oh we'll get you. <laughs> yeah, she was all like that. And then um when I did get dropped off, she had put a star on the door, laid out this little paper red carpet that she made. And we live on an estate. Like everyone <laughs> can see your house and your like Masonette, whatever. And I was like, oh, my god, and I walked up and there was a couple of young lads from the estate that like I knew. And I walked up to the house and, and they looked at me and they were like, is it your birthday or something? And I was like, <laughs> no, my mum's just being a dick. <laughs> and, and so oh, I was so sweet. So embarrassed. I was like, I couldn't believe she did it. But she thought it was so funny to
3: do that.
2: <laughs> I think that was funny, to be fair. Yeah,
3: no, she'd done me. Um, but yeah, but like, like stuff like that. So you told us like obviously quite a lot about your own childhood and stuff growing up. But Obviously, you're a dad yourself now. Yeah, how does your kid's childhood differ from yours?
4: Massively, probably. Um, I mean, I still think because my wife is you know from a working class background as well. She grew up in in Dunstable, uh, I'm in Bedfordshire, and uh, like uh, her grandparents on all sides, are Irish, so they've dealt with a lot of that coming over here as well, and uh, that's kind of I think seep down through the generations as well and they see themselves very much as and they are working class and so I think both of us have got quite a, a thrifty mentality I, I guess we're not like big spenders or anything because you're always thinking well we don't know when that money's going to run out or when the jobs will run sure. out or anything like that yeah you know we've got a very good mentality for being self-employed and uh, so I, I think you know the kids have got the right level of um i don't know if i want to say like like a certain amount of accountability i mean they're only seven and three so there's only so much you can do (laughs) but my daughter is aware that she has a privilege like she lives in she she lives in like a four bedroom house her and her brother have their own bedrooms like me and my brother shared a bedroom until i left at 19 so Mm -hmm. and 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 we've made them aware of the fact that you know they they live in a nice house they go to a really nice school um they get to have nice things they've got a nice big garden to run around in and play in and all that kind of stuff so we make them very aware of those things in a really lovely way not not like you know we're not like punishing them for being you know better off than we were or anything yeah they they have a lot but i think that i think they're particularly my daughter is yeah. aware that she has a lot and she's got a beautiful heart she's very emotionally intelligent for her age and she even will come out with things like she's asked me about what i they love asking me what i did as a kid and uh and when we get onto the subject of what you had and what it was like and all this stuff she's she can then kind of say that back to me a little bit in in other conversations where she goes oh well we're lucky because we have this and other people don't have that do they daddy and all this kind of stuff and so it's it's working and 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 I'm I'm proud of that as well that we've instilled that in her
2: yeah because you know like I'm sat in I'm actually sat in a flat um which I own I worked very hard for finally I bought last year finally um and it's, it's just talking about being working class, really thinking about it. We, us, I suppose, on this call, don't really lead a working class life anymore. No. Um, we we all work. Uh, I work as an actor. Hannah works as our director. You work as an actor. Um, we're doing what we want to do and we're getting paid well and we live a certain... Mm. I, I, I don't. Yeah, it's not a working class life. So do you still consider yourself working class? even though I suppose now we're not really leading that working class life? Because I still feel very, very connected mm. to my working class roots. It's I, I gravitate towards other working class actors and friends and I, I, I do. It's just in me. How, how do you feel about that?
4: I think I feel very similarly. I think it would be wrong of me to try and claim being working class in my adult life in terms of dealing with the difficulties of it um yes. especially given the pandemic like the pandemic's here I've had two mm. jobs postponed recently it has sucked um but being in the situation that I am and being the mentality that I've got we've got enough in the bank for me to go if this is a bit of a write-off of a year we're not clambering and panicking or anything like that like we're gonna be okay. Whereas there's lots of people that you know, if they've lost jobs or that, like that they're immediately signing on or really struggling or anything like that. But having said that, I definitely do consider my my I don't know what you call it, like you your innards, your your soul, yeah. if you want to say I'm not a religious guy, but says something in you. It's like that that is working class because the the things that you deal with in your upbringing they don't leave they they leave that imprint on you that you can't ditch or I would find it very difficult to ditch and wouldn't necessarily want to either. Um, Mm. you know, there's just little things instilled in you or little experiences that you've had that you can't forget. So you go through your life, I think still very much working class and still very much feeling a kinship and a connection more so with people that are working class than you do with people that have lived a privileged life from the off. Yeah. I guess.
2: Yeah.
3: One of the reasons we really wanted to do this podcast, I think, is that there's a lot of assumptions that people make about you if you're working class, if you speak a certain way, if you come from a certain place. And do you still find that? Do you ever ever get that where you think, oh, people make assumptions about you?
4: Maybe, maybe. I find it hard to differentiate now whether it's because of being working class or if it's because I've played, you know, a, a working class idiot.
3: Right, yeah. People
4: know you've done it. So if people treat me in a way that I feel like is is based in uh kind of class stereotype or something like that, I... I don't always immediately go to oh that's because I'm working class. I might be more inclined to go to oh they think I'm this character that I'm definitely not, and yeah. I now have to actually maintain a conversation with you just to prove that I'm not that guy because the right because he is a, a working class archetype in a way like that, that that kind of idiot lad. I mean he's a he's a lovely he's kind of sensitive guy in a way. <laughs> he's not he doesn't mean anyone any harm but he's just such a moron. And uh, <laughs> and because I, and 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 even maybe I've, maybe I've made a rod for my own back in some ways, because I definitely accentuate some working class elements of myself for that role.
2: Yeah. Yes.
4: Like I, I would argue that my voice isn't identical to what I would do with Neil or anything like that. Yeah. And so in a way you think, Oh, I've made a rod for my own back here because I have lent on, Certain stereotypes myself, I guess, in a way. And that's one of the things I with, the, with Kate yeah, and Koji. Yeah. that was something we wanted to do. We wanted to keep a character working class, but make him very intelligent, make him well-read, yeah. make him, you know, um, just a very socially compassionate guy uh, into the news you know
2: it's interesting it's interesting though that that discussion was had wasn't it to go let's make a conscious effort to make this you know cockney speaking person um let's give them brains you know it's it's, it's a that's a conversation itself isn't it that people are making a conscious effort to go oh look you see you know you you can speak like that and and still have a Brain cell,
4: yeah, 100%. Know. And, that, and that was and Andy Hamilton, uh, was was the guy that, that said it to me. He's one of the writers of, of Kate and Cody. He was like, We were re- we really wanted to make a conscious effort, as you say, to create the most intelligent guy in the room mm. is, is a working class guy, and that's not the obvious. Uh, stereotypes that you think of when you think of our country and, and who, who's the most intelligent guy in the room. It's, it's very rarely going to be the one with the Cockney accent or something like that. Um, so, I, But I think I was really good with them. That's one of the big reasons I wanted to do it as well.
3: I still get really excited when I hear a very erudite working-class person, yeah. something me and Laura talk about a lot, but yeah. you know, somebody who is absolutely comfortable in their accent and yet, of course, why wouldn't they be, is very well-read, very articulate. That still makes me really excited, which I suppose in itself, is a bit of a shame because it means I feel like those stereotypes still exist. But I definitely think it's getting better for sure. Yeah. But I'm not sure you're going to get a broad Cockney speaking news at 10 news anchor just yet. You just don't feel like you're going to have that just yet. On a a more positive note, I suppose, do you think that there are advantages to having grown up in a working class environment and a working class family?
4: I think there are advantages to it. I think work ethic is probably good. I mean, there'll be people out there from privileged backgrounds that have fantastic work ethics. Of course, Um, yeah. But I think, it, you know, to to get where you want to be if you've come from very little, you must be driven because it's all too easy to just Mm -hmm. sit in what people expect of your life. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to go, oh, well, you know, my my dad took us down the pub every, every Sunday. And he had a few pints and he got home and watched the football and that, and then he worked Monday to Friday and, and, and that was it. But as long as you can get out down the pub and you've got a family and maybe one day, if you're lucky enough, you might, you know, have a mortgage, then that's, you're winning. That's great. And it's very easy to kind of just go, that's, that's all I want from life uh, or that's all anyone expects from me. So regardless of having certain dreams and aspirations, I'm, I'm not going to go through with that because it's it's not going to happen. Um, so I think to to break out of or break a kind of that invisible ceiling, uh, you you do have to have a strong work ethic and you have to be driven and probably have thick skin, especially in our industry, when you are getting rejected all the time and you are being told, no, you're not going to get paid for this job, this unpaid play, and uh, you're going to have to find another way of doing it and then still come in and do the play. Uh, there's other people's jobs as well.
2: I, you know, I always feel like, you know, when you are having a moan and, you know, like, oh God, I can't get a job. And, you know, I keep going up for these auditions. I'm not getting cast. And then when you do get a job and you get paid really well, I, I look at that and I think every time I just always remind myself how lucky I am because my brother works his ass off. He works so hard, like six days a week, getting up at the crack of dawn, getting home late, you know, and, and he's, a, he's a painter and decorator. And, you know... I get paid triple that or whatever, and I think I always, always go back to that. It's always what I go back to, thinking I'm not working that hard, I'm not digging a, a hole in the road, and I'm not. And it, and I think that's for me, like that working class ethic in there, just always going, "You're really fucking lucky." Shut up.
4: <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that that is it. You ever? I think again, coming from the backgrounds that we have, you will have a sense of perspective that maybe some other people don't, because you know your life could have gone. A very different way. Whereas people that aren't exposed to those potential pathways will never really consider it. They'll just go, "Oh well, I, you know, I went to university to study this, and that was all paid for, and I didn't have to worry about it." And uh, and then I started doing this career, and it's all worked out lovely. I've never really thought about, you know, the the negative aspects of where it could have gone. Because if this didn't happen, I was already trained as a lawyer, or I was already trained like, or whatever it is, you know. Whereas we were like for, definitely for me. I was like, oh, well, it's this or nothing, and uh, this
3: has to work.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I was very lucky, and and you know, my backup plan might have been like, I don't know, could I maybe be a primary school teacher? Mm.
2: Right. So listen, we're coming to the end, sadly, of our celebration of you, Blake. But before we finish up, we always ask our guests to think of an unsung hero that they would like to celebrate today. So Blake, who would you like to celebrate?
4: Um, I think I would have to say my mum, because as I said earlier, she, you know, without her, I probably wouldn't be where I was. She put in a lot of time and effort every Saturday, taking us to like little, like drama clubs and stuff like that. And, uh, and she always made the effort to to just try her best and she knew nothing about the industry uh she had no one to really turn to and, and ask too many questions about it she just learned what she could as she went and and hoped the best for me and and without her not only putting the money in to to those classes as well but also the time and the effort and the driving and the um you know listening to me sing a song and helping me out and all that kind of stuff like if if it wasn't for her doing worse things, I I have no idea where I would be.
2: Well you certainly wouldn't have been at that baggy trousers audition if it weren't that's for your mum, that's for sure. What's your mum's name? Dawn. Oh, so we're gonna celebrate
3: Dawn today, as well as as well as you, Blake.
4: Thanks very much.
3: Oh Blake, thanks so much. That's been absolutely brilliant. It's been so great chatting to you.
4: Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys.
3: Thank you so much. Yeah, Take thanks, care.
4: mate. All the best, guys.
3: I mean, as always, I loved listening back to that. But um, I must be honest, listener, uh, we actually recorded this episode quite early on in lockdown and I had COVID (gasps) and was running a temperature of God knows what and could barely lift my head. I mean, poor Blake.
2: (laughs) I know. And also I sounded like I was in the toilet because Nana doesn't know how to use any of her microphone at that point. I didn't know how to use my mic at that point. And I'd had it
3: plugged in, but it wasn't set up to any sort of
2: system. So it was just like a redundant oh, microphone
3: sat there. Well, oh, thank, thank God Blake's up. such a brilliant guest and had all those amazing stories. Otherwise, I think he saved us there. I'll tell you what else I was doing. Because
2: I was frightened no one could hear me. I was really enunciating.
3: About time. <laughs>
2: Oh, no, it was really great. And I think it was so interesting to see just how instrumental his mum was in his journey, like all those little decisions along the way, you know, when he wasn't going to go to the, what was, in between his audition because of the you know worried about not getting his office training done so he wouldn't get paid you know she she was instrumental in that she took him to the theater for the first time and she encouraged him and you know I, I had the same with my parents and I always worry for the kids out there that don't have the same you know so I
3: just yeah it was, his mum's great isn't she and also she obviously stopped along the way to still manage to take the piss out of him as well so she's my <laughs> kind of woman <laughs>
2: Yeah, that was a great chat. Well, we'll see you um, in a couple of weeks with our final guest of the season.
3: Did I just say season? I hate myself for saying season. Who am I? <laughs> Jesus, you've been watching too much Netflix, mate, in lockdown. Uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks with an amazing final guest of the series. Woo-hoo! Thanks for listening. Bye. Ooh.
2: Proper Class Podcast is produced by Michelle Farr-Scott for Rangabe Productions, edited by James Torrance, with music by Tommy Music. Thank you so much for downloading the Proper Class Podcast, but we just wondered if we could ask a little favour of you and talk you into hitting the old subscribe button. I mean, I've no idea where that is, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. That way you'll never miss out on any of our up-and-coming amazing guests. Also, not going to lie, it does make us look quite popular. And then if you're feeling really lovely and you can be asked, go ahead and pop a little review up for us. It does go a long way and it absolutely means the world to us. But only if the review is nice, yeah? I mean,
0: keep it classy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.